0: president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am delighted and honored to introduce to you two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kevin Andrews and Jessica Beaver. Today we are going to discuss the novel coronavirus, aka also known as COVID-19, and its impact on U.S. immigration how it will impact you, your company, your business, your employees, or your families. Needless to say, these are very, very tough and trying times for everybody as we are trying to figure out what's going on in the world, what's happening in our respective jurisdictions and areas and consulates at USCIS with CBP, etc. But we thought this would be very helpful in order to keep you informed of all of the changes happening within the different immigration agencies in the United States and how they are trying to deal with some of these issues that are arising, these novel issues. So um, we are going to share the latest information as possible uh, with you. And so we hope that this will be cutting edge as of the time that it is recorded and played back to you. So with that, Let me get started, if I can, with you, Kevin, to talk about the changes with respect to the Customs and Border Protection, uh, or CBP.
1: Hi. Thanks, Sheila. So, uh, of course, you know, if you're following the news, you're probably seeing how borders all over the planet are are shutting down. And in the United States, the president has issued uh, a proclamation restricting travel, from places like China, Iran, European countries like the United Kingdom and Ireland. Both the Canadian and the Mexican borders have suspended most uh, cross-border travel um, and and are limiting uh, cross-border travel uh, for uh, essential things. Certainly they're trying to keep the supply chain uh, operating, but when it comes to immigration things, uh, definitely a a large uh, suspension in most of those services. Uh, Even, you know, refugee admissions has paused and, you know, asylum practice. So so, so really just a freeze on just about all of these uh, services that relate to to the borders. Uh, The Trusted Traveler Program is suspended until at least May 1st, you know, which sort of uh, bypasses and and, um, uh, uh, and makes easier a lot of the uh, traveling requirements for entry into the United States from certain countries. And in India, most... Visa services have also been suspended. Uh, The lockbox uh, option is no longer an option. You'd have to uh, go to attend an interview if you need to apply for a visa. And unfortunately, uh, face-to-face interviewing is something that's been suspended uh, while we're in this early phase of of social distancing the the planet. the uh other countries are also like as i mentioned suspending uh entry into their borders which is going to impact uh united states uh, people in the united states from traveling out not just us citizens but people from those countries like uh i think i saw um el salvador and a few other places have uh, uh stopped flights coming into their countries so you know that's going to suspend uh Im- outgoing immigration to those to those countries as well so
0: thank you kevin
1: that... sorry go ahead no that was it
0: Thank you, Kevin. So, just to be clear, so from Customs and Border Protection of CBP, we're next going to talk about the U.S. consulates or the U.S. Department of State, as as Kevin just alluded to a minute ago. um, Most of the visa services at the U.S. Department of State or consular posts in India have been uh, discontinued, have been stopped, however, from our Chennai team in um, India, it is our understanding that um, they will have have been accepting Dropbox applications with even new ones as late as March 18th, last Wednesday, uh, a week ago. And they're also looking at uh, maybe continuing to accept documents by mail, but they're not allowing any in-person appointments as this time, similar to what USCIS is doing, which we're going to talk about briefly. But so... Just to clarify, so routine visa services have stopped in all countries all over the world, pretty much, though they still have urgent or emergency services available and what exactly that is and what it means, to be figured out. Also services to U.S. citizens who are stuck abroad is continuing because they want to make sure that U.S. citizens can come back to their home country, to their country of citizenship. So for those who are stuck in a particular consulate for yourself or your employees or your family members, please check each consulate's website for more accurate and detailed and up-to-date information on what they are doing or will be willing to do and what they consider as urgent or emergent emergency services. As most of you know, the immigrant visas tend to be issued only for six months, the IVs. And so for only immigrant visa related issues, The U.S. consulates are planning to introduce a process to be able to reprint the visa foil in case the six-month time is now getting over. Your family was planning to enter the U.S., but now because of canceled airlines and flights, they are not able to enter the United States. But for this, the underlying or supporting documents should not have expired. For example, the police clearance certificates or the medical documents but if these documents have expired, then your family members, if you've sponsored your parents, whatever, for the immigrant visa, you will have to again obtain those, make sure they are not expired in order for the U.S. consulate to now reissue the immigrant visa FOIL. Most non-immigrant visas, which are called the MR visa, the machine-readable visas, those continue to generally remain valid the visa fee the visa processing fee if you have booked an appointment and you're planning and you paid for it that mrv fee is valid for one full year so hopefully you still have time to use it but if you had waited till the 11th hour and now your year is getting over they haven't said that they will extend it beyond the one year time now also of course for those who maybe have gotten uh and a change of status an h1b approval for consular notification you went abroad and now you're stuck outside because there are either no visa appointments available as of March 16th, for example, in India or even many of the airlines have been canceled from many countries coming back into, in fact, I think India shut down most international traffic entering uh, India as of last week as well. So those are logistical concerns that you and your family have to ensure that you plan, especially if you're trying to send somebody out, you want to make sure that you are not going to be stuck there. And those who are stuck were hopefully, I know they said it was one week shutdown. Now it's gone to a two week shutdown. We don't know how long this is going to continue. Next, let's talk about USCIS policies. If I can have you, Jessica, jump into it. Sure.
2: So the good news is USCIS service centers are still open to receive filings. The cases are still being processed. Um, and USCIS uh, last Friday, March 20th, also made it easier for people to kind of um, make certain filings in this type of atmosphere in that they're allowing reproduced signatures for the duration of this crisis, meaning that normal forms, for example, like the I-129 that absolutely require a wet signature, so to speak, can be filed using a scanned um, a scanned version of that wet signature. However, they do caveat that you have to keep the record of that wet signature in case they ask for it later. Unfortunately, premium processing was suspended for all I-129s and I-140s as of Friday um, while this uh, crisis is going on. The USCIS has suspended interviews, biometrics, and oath ceremonies from March 18th to April 1st. This could also uh, go forward, and we're kind of waiting from USCIS to see how many more appointments that they kind of cancel for this in-person type of work. However, we've heard some local offices, you know, are still working, part telework staff, but the public is just not able to come for InfoPass appointments or any of their other appointments. The USCIS even indicated prior to kind of shutting off these in-person appointments, you know, if you um, were exhibiting any signs of of COVID-19, you know, please call to request to change your appointment and they also put out a specific announcement about public charge now that that's on everybody's mind from February 24th that everyone should seek treatment for COVID-19 and it won't be considered a public charge to seek treatment or preventative services for this so that way people are also um, taking care of their health. Um, USCIS has not announced any more online filings. Of course, there are a few forms that are allowed to be filed online. Um, however, there's no further kind of announcement of anything else being able to be filed online. So for right now, USCIS is still open to take applications, and you can file with, with copies of
0: signatures. Thank you so much, Jessica. The, I guess like Jessica pointed out, the good news is that the U.S. service centers and the USCIS local offices are all working and open The bad news, there's always two sides to every coin, as we well know. The bad news with that is that because they are continuing to be open, they are not given any confirmation as of today that we are aware of as of now that that they will give us extended time or additional time to respond to time-sensitive notice of intentions to deny or notice of intentions to revoke or RFEs. So... That's something that you have to keep in mind and continue to ensure that you prepare the package, send it out, mail it, FedEx it, so it reaches the USCIS on time, so you don't, uh, so people's statuses aren't being uh, jeopardized in the crisis because they haven't, even though they have been flexible with reproduced signatures, they have not been flexible with time processes, etc. So that's the, the, the little bit that you have to be a little more cautious and careful about. Just another aside, it sort of explains for us as well. Uh, some states have said that law firms and lawyers are considered essential services, and we found out uh, that on Monday, March twenty third, 2020, that the governor of the state of Maryland, Larry Hogan, issued an executive order confirming that law, lawyers and law firms are considered essential services, that we are required and could and should stay in business to serve the public so we intend to continue to take care of people and do all the filings and serve, serve people even if some of our employees and staff and lawyers and people are working remotely many are working in the office many are working remotely because we want to ensure everybody is safe like i hope all of you are doing with your businesses as well so now that we've given a brief overview with respect to CBP, U.S. consulates, and U.S.C.I.S., next, next let's touch briefly upon the immigration course or the Executive Office of Immigration Review. Um, I know it won't affect many of our clients, but I know it because we're expecting several thousands to sign up for this conference, it will affect those whom it affects. So we want to touch upon it. So, Kevin, if you would uh, go over it briefly
1: yeah just real briefly, and I'm sure this makes a lot of sense based on what everything else is happening right now, but most uh immigration many immigration courts have canceled and postponed uh, most hearings or have closed altogether uh probably by the time of this uh, that this is playing that might be the entire country, but um certainly that started to or the list is growing um, a- every single day so uh anything involving in person uh, uh, services that immigration court has been suspended indefinitely. Um, when it comes to ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, to the extent that they're involved with uh, student services for F1s, the Student Exchange Visitor Program issued two uh, mes- messages to issue two um, memos about uh, the coronavirus. Uh, the first one was in January of 2019, uh, sorry, January of 2020, before this became a, a global crisis. And uh, the message there was just guidance for students who were um, symptomatic, <clears throat> things that they could do to um, to reduce their course load due to the medical condition. So they were offering C- uh, SCVP was offering flexibility to those students to reduce their coursework uh, to deal with um, you know recovery and uh, also for. Uh, allowing for some flexibility for students that are on absence to be able to reinstate their F1 status. So that initial January 2020 broadcast message was an indication of, you know, giving some flexibility to the students who might be uh, experiencing the virus. I think after that, though, there was a recent one, uh, Jessica, right, in March of 2020?
0: Yes. Right. The, so, so Right. So that's the second SEVP broadcast message that was issued um, so did, did we also talk about the medically reduced course load? I guess we talked to people actually either get ill or sim- indicate symptoms, etc. cetera. Um, but then the second SEVP broadcast message, which was released on March 9, 2020, about a couple weeks ago, basically says that uh, we can adapt procedures and policies to address concerns that the university or the student has to notify the student and exchange visitor program within 10 days. And then the SEVP informs NASA, uh, which is the International Student, which was the International Foreign Students Association, or it's called the International Students Association, that they are flexible and will allow distance learning from the U.S. or outside the United States is also permissible. Myself, uh, being on two university boards, majority of the universities are now doing, because they don't want students coming back after all the partying, I guess, with the uh, spring break and also to protect each other because classes, people tend to sit together and there's not very large classes to encourage the whole social distancing issue that uh, uh, online courses, distancing will be permitted even for F1 students without the usual restrictions of only one semester or one course each semester, etc. cetera. Um, so... Uh, We're not sure, obviously, about, you know, what happens. Will a student be able to return to the United States if they're continuing their studies outside of the country because of COVID-19, because they're either not able to travel or because they went back and they're stuck abroad? But they are right now allowing distance learning and students who continue to make normal progress on their course of study uh, obviously remain eligible for admission, for readmission, etc., but you have to continuously monitor what is happening with restrictions for each country because practically every week we see new countries or a change in the countries. sometimes or adding on additional countries as we've been seeing in the last week or two. And of course, there's also a focus on those who may pose public safety risks and those who are subject to mandatory detention based on certain criminal grounds. Obviously, flights to countries like Italy, China, and South Korea have been suspended temporarily, even when we're deporting or removing people from the United States. And for whether it's hospitals or facilities or prison facilities or USCIS detention facilities, no social visitation is allowed at many such facilities. And they're rescheduling in-person appointments and pushing back the timeline to sixty days for recent arrivals. So, Sheila, please, she, go ahead, she, uh, Jessica. Yeah,
2: I just I just wanted to reiterate what you said. But the bottom line for students is basically that universities are supposed to adapt those procedures and policies. So it's very flexible. They have to develop their own policy and just let SCVP know within ten days. So. A lot of universities may take different, you know, different approaches, but that's kind of what the recommendation is is just for students to touch base with the DSO and make sure SEVP is up to date with what's going on.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jessica. Okay, so next let me have you actually if you don't mind talk about the employer employer compliance because you are our of course Department of Labor Uh, expert on this panel and this team. So talk to us a little bit about what's going on with respect to green cards and Department of Labor's, uh, you know, willingness during this period of the quarantines.
2: Sure. So the good thing is the Department of Labor is still, um, still running. They have a lot of things online. So we're still able to file cases online. We're still able to, you know, respond to things by email. Since they're kind of paperless, our um, systems with them Fortunately, for us, are not too uh, changed. However, they did publish a frequently asked question, in one of their FAQs, about permitting extensions of deadlines So basically this was on March of 2020,
0: just a little, just last Friday, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. So basically, they're saying that if a deadline falls within March 13th, 2020 to May 12th, 2020, they're basically saying the employer's response or submission of information will still be considered timely if it's received no later than May 12th. So this does include, you know, requests for audit documentation, responses to notice of deficiencies, Submission of recruitment reports, business verification and sponsorship documentation, supervised recruitment, request for reconsideration of a prevailing wage determination, and basically any other request for information issued by the OFLC containing due date deadlines. They're trying to give people a little bit of practicality, um, just because um, of what we're going to talk about with regards to the notice of filings. But. Basically like I said, they will accept recruitment completed 60 days after the regulatory deadlines have passed provided that the employer initiated its recruitment prior to the president's declaration March 13th. So if you've delayed the recruitment, you know, you may not be able to to use this rule. Basically delayed recruitment in conjunction with the filing of an application must have started basically on or after September 15th, and the filing must occur by May 12th. So you almost have to have the case, you know, in in process. Um, The issue that I mentioned with the notice of filing is basically, um unlike H-1B, which we'll talk about in a moment, the regulations talk about that electronic notice is required in addition to a hard copy of a notice of filing. So it's, it's hard because U.S. workers have to be able to see this notice of filing if they're not at the work site. Um, however, there are some creative solutions to this. Of course, if at all possible, you could wait until after the quarantine ends to post the notice of filing. This may not be feasible in all situations. So if you are able to post it, as well as kind of email it to all workers, and I know that a lot of... Um, a lot of our employers have a consulting model to where the employees are not really at their headquarters. Um, They could post both there and email to try to comply with giving all workers notification. Um, It's just going to depend on kind of what's happening with your situation and, um, you know, speaking to your attorney um, about the best course of action in terms
0: of filing or delaying. And they even suggest that maybe direct notice, if possible, direct email to employees if the notice is not already provided on the company's uh, company's intranet or direct hard copy mailing. So they're giving you multiple options, but basically I think it's a large extent uncharted territory, and they're trying to be certainly more flexible or at least giving us more time then right now the USCIS has given any type of confirmation. So next, Kevin, can I jump to you to talk about the H-1B employees, if they're allowed to work from home and how they can do the LCA notice, postings, etc. Oh, Oh, sure. um, you know what? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, if you want, I can talk about that, and then you can talk about the other issues, about the LCA filing. Um, so sure. with respect to the H-1B employees, According to the USCIS, yes, they realize that because of the current monitoring situation that they are expecting uh, and believe that many employees will be working remotely telecommuting. And so, no posting notices must be posted apparently in in the home and then stored in the employer's public access file after they are then taken down. And with respect to H-1B and E-3 employers, E-3, by the way, is the same as H-1B, but for Australian citizens, for those who need a quick refresher, if you have asked the H-1 or the E-3 employee to work from home, make sure as an employer that your staff lives within the same MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, that you have indicated on the LCA. Because if the person does not work within the same MSA as mentioned on the LCA, then you as the employer would need to file an amendment uh, of the LCA with the U.S. Department of Labor. And also in situations where the employee has the option to work from home or works both from sometimes from the employer's offices and sometimes telecommutes or remote works from home, then the notices must be posted at each work site location prior to filing the LCA. And if an employer allows workers the option to work from home, the employer must also afford this option Uh, obviously, to their H-1B employees because you want to be fair and square with all of your employees. Um, Was somebody trying to say something? I'm sorry.
2: Oh, yes, Sheila. I just wanted to interject because some of this information that we're given is also a very conservative approach. Um, I know that some people have read different Department of Labor wage and hour division meetings where their notes basically say that the employee does not have to post at their home. However, we're giving the most conservative a voice uh, because there's not official public announcement of agency policies. So that's why we are trying to give you know the best guidance possible to those listening.
0: Thank you so much for the clarification. It's true because there was Department of Labor guidance, I think, from over two years or three years ago, March of 2017. And so to the extent that three-year-old guidance has not been confirmed or updated by the U.S. Department of Labor, it's better to play the safer, more conservative approach. And if we find that they're more flexible in a week, in two weeks, in a month, or even in a day, then we will obviously be happy to uh, post that information in our multi-bulletin articles or whatever the information that we can continue to empower, educate, and enlighten our valued um, immigrant community, employers, and families. Next, Kevin, let me jump to you with what type of notice or LCA filing is required in order to allow the H-1B employee to work from home, and whether an H-1B amendment petition is required to allow the, the employee to work from home.
1: Sure, Sheila. Um, so I think you know it's definitely <clears throat> important to uh, know what the answer was before COVID-19 and then also look look at how the government is making um, common sense accommodations to deal with COVID-19. So uh, the policy is if there's a material change to the terms and conditions of employment, you have to file an amendment. Um, And the government, the regulations don't define what material change means, but we have a few examples. And one example is if the new work location is outside of the metropolitan statistical area or the normal commuting distance of the original location. So, um, you know, I, I think in response to COVID-19, if uh, you're working at uh, an end client project and because of the social distancing policy, shelter in place or wherever's happening in your, in your state right now, there is a requirement to work from home well, if home is within normal commuting distance of that work location, of that client, then, you know, th- there's, there's the theory that because of, co- especially under COVID-19, that this is not a material change, just uh, post the LCA posting notice at the, home, uh, at the home location, like Jessica said, just to be conservative, post it um, you know, on the refrigerator door or in the bathroom door or what have you. Um, to insulate yourself from there. Now, if there was not COVID-19 going on, I would say that USCIS would probably make, determine this to be a material change because on the I-129 form, there's a question, will you be working uh, at an end-client location, yes or no? It, uh, if you're working at you know, Google and Tesla and Facebook or wherever, these are end-clients, um, so you'd say yes. But if you're working from the home office that your employer has approved you to work from, but this is not a client location, but I think common sense in the age of COVID-19 prevails here that USCIS would likely allow, and, and this is speculation at this point, it's just kind of early on speculation, but would allow you to make that accommodation to um, work from home, certainly if home is within normal commuting distance of the original location. What if home is not within normal commuting distance? What if you're working at a project and it's a long commute because it's in Silicon Valley and who the heck can live there or whatever, right? Right. Um, uh, now you 're working outside of the normal uh, uh, you, not only are you working from home but at, at a uh, work location that 's outside of the original commutable distance of the original location. This probably would require an amendment to be filed now um, again, going back to the requirement for the amendment is that it has to be filed before the material change takes place so um you know in this industry, especially with i t consulting where it 's a very short term it 's volatile when when the world is set, <laughs> is stable right. Uh, this, there's going to be a lot of potentially disruption to projects. And I think, in, again, in the age of COVID-19, that if you file a petition late with an explanation that there are extraordinary circumstances, the global pandemic that led to the delay of me being able to file this uh, before the project radically changed and trillions of dollars were sucked out of the global economy. You know, I, I don't know. I think that USCIS would be a little bit more receptive to that based on what's going on right now. Um, and and that, I would say that would also be true for those who are going to lose projects after, uh, uh, in response to this, in the coming you know, weeks and months. That um, making an argument that there were extraordinary circumstances beyond any individual's control that are happening to the entire global market that led to this delay in filing because of the volatility with the project. Um, so right. I so think just these are a couple of things to think about.
0: Thank you so much, Kevin. So just to be clear, I want to be sure that at this moment, USCIS has not issued very clear-cut COVID-19 guidance on what is homework, what is allowed, what is not allowed. It's more like we're going back to the short-term placement option, for example, or we're basing it on prior law and regulations which allows up to a 30-day limit or 60 work days each year, et cetera, that we talked about, because we're well, thinking that if it lasts, then, of course, you would need to do a new LCA. But, again, if they issue some new guidance over the next few days or weeks, then, obviously, that would be considered to supersede and uh, triumph over what we've just discussed.
1: Correct. That's true. That's a, that's a potential band-aid to the situation. So there's a short-term placement rule that says if you're at a physical location where you're going to be working for less than a 30-day period in a one-year uh, time frame, or, or up to 60 days if um, it's within the, the same commuting distance as the original uh, location, then you're you're uh, this is not considered a physical work location. It's short-term placement. Um, there there's potentially a strategy here of you know, relying on this being a short-term thing, and then if it goes beyond the 30 or the 60-day uh, time limit that would apply in the situation, to prepare to file the amendment before you hit the 30 or the 60 days, whichever applies to you. Um, I think that even if you file after that that window, uh, because or, or uh, it's something where like there's a change in project that also in conjunction with the, the 30 or 60-day short-term placement rule to also take into consideration the extraordinary circumstances provision that would allow a latent filing to be filed if there was something that was going on beyond the company's control.
0: That's where we hope that the government will exercise discretion and leniency, except from what we've been seeing for the past two or three years. I'm not sure. I would bet my life savings on it, um, and, but let's hope that they do realize. And I think to some extent, they have been somewhat more flexible overall in terms of at least being open or to consider ideas in this climate and in this unprecedented time. Let's talk about the employer I-9 compliance. Uh, we are mindful that I know we realize we try to wrap these up between 30 and 45 minutes because people are busy and have lives to deal with, but we would like to talk about the employer I-9 compliance, then about layoffs both in the H-1 and PERM context, and hopefully wrap it up. But let me have uh, Jessica, why don't you talk about the employer I-9 compliance?
2: Yeah, so basically over the past couple of days, we've seen some you know, government changes, certainly. Um, basically last Friday, March 20th of 2020, ICE basically announced that they're going to exercise discretion basically for the physical presence requirements associated with the Form I-9, but basically only for employers and workplaces who are operating rem- remotely. Um, for a lot of this, basically they're saying now that you can review documents electronically if teleworking is taking place. However, once that comes to an end and you can uh, do return to to work you'll have to conduct in-person reviews within the normal three days um, similarly to anything of their their notices of information that they've sent out they're kind of giving an extra 60 days to kind of respond to that so good idea to keep keep your eyes peeled with regards to i9 if you're if you're onboarding anyone um, but they are relaxing some of those physical presence requirements because of the current situation
0: yeah, and I think you also said as of March 20th, the government has announced that they would allow all documents to be reviewed electronically by the HR if teleworking is in place with that particular organization or company and that you can conduct the in-person reviews once the business review uh, resumes normal operations within three days of that time frame. Uh, wonderful. Thank you very much, Jessica. So let's talk about layoffs briefly. Uh, Kevin?
1: Yeah, so... Um Layoffs are going to be a potential reality uh, as we enter into this recession. So, you know, on the employer side, just as a refresher, the employer needs to, uh, if the employer is laying off an H-1 worker, have to offer uh, the reasonable cost of the return transfer uh, ticket home, a plane ticket home, if the employer is uh, initiating a termination or layoff. For the employee side, or I guess for everyone, something to consider is that if there's someone in H-1B status who is being laid off and their I-94 card, you know, what that gives them their H-1B status is facially valid for uh, some time into the future, more than 60 days, this individual would have a 60-day grace period to file a change of employer to transfer to another uh, a company or change of status. Maybe their spouse is on H-1 and they want to cha- change to H-4 status. So there's also uh, a little bit more flexibility because of a, uh, regulation from 2017 that gives uh, H-1 workers this grace period to file a transfer or a change of status. Um, benching, if uh, so, you know one way maybe some people are going to weather this storm is to potentially think about bench with pay. Which, if you're paying an H-1B worker, I mean that's required even if they're not working. But if they are not working, that's not maintaining terms and conditions of their status, and so uh, you know that could ap- impact. The ability to get an extension of status later. Again, maybe uh, there'll be extra common sense applied to these kinds of provisions if the only reason you're benching an employee has something directly related to the COVID-19, you know, pandemic crisis. And, and and maybe USCIS would exercise some discretion there. That's speculation at this point. I think I'm a little hopeful because I'm looking at how they're they've approached the public charge question. I thought that was really you know, proactive on their part to say, hey, we're not going to treat this as a public charge issue. We just want to know, you know, we just want to attack the the problem and not create a new policy out of it.
0: Right. You're saying, basically saying, go get medical treatment. We won't hold that against you. Uh, Also, just to be clear, from the H1 employer point of view, if you're terminating an employee because of the whole problem and stress and tension and financial hardship, uh, then obviously it has to be very clear. It has to be a bona fide determination with express clear cut it can't be a gray area, send a proper letter or an email so both sides agree and understand because sometimes what happens is employer thinks they have done it and the employee says, But I didn't get anything in writing. It's protects everybody to have everything very clearly documented in writing, agreed to by both parties. And obviously, at that point, you also want to notify the USCIS of the termination and the revocation for the H-1B petition. If you're the employer, from the employee point of view, if you're the employee listening to this conference and you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what's going to happen? At least now you know for sure. And as Kevin just pointed out, thanks to the January uh, 2017 regulations, you have the 60-day grace period from the date of termination of your employment to find another job, another employer, or even the same employer if they're willing to come back because things suddenly hopefully look bright and sunny after all of this dark cloud passes by, then you could actually file it within the 60-day grace period and be considered to have maintained your valid status, a benefit that did not exist prior to January 2017. Um, Let's briefly talk about PERM, Jessica.
2: And I just wanted to remind people about PERM because there is a question on the ETA 9089 form. You know, has the employer had a layoff in the area of intended employment in the occupation involved in this application or in a related occupation within the six months immediately preceding the filing of this application? Um, So employers in this instance can wait to file the case for six months if they'd like to answer that question no. Um, The alternative is, you know, if yes for the laid off, U.S. workers notified and considered for the job opportunity. So there are some things that employers can go through that basically the Department of Labor um, frequently asked question in 2014 kind of goes about how to notify U.S. workers. Um, So it's more of a strategy because certainly we have times where we have to answer yes to that question, but then you have to kind of be prepared in an audit to document that you um, gave notification to those U.S. workers. So for some employers, they want to wait the, the six months. So, as always, you know, we recommend speaking to an attorney because there are different, um, you know, pieces of that question, related occupations, same area of intended employment, things that um, you may have to consider when answering that question.
0: Thank you very much, Jessica. As you can see, uh, we have really brilliant, talented, knowledgeable colleagues At the Murthy Law Firm, you just heard both Kevin Andrews and Jessica Beaver speak Uh, very briefly to give you an overview. We obviously have a lot, lot more information. We're cognizant of your time. These are unprecedented times that call for everybody, for individuals, for employers, for employees, for families, for attorneys. To, for all of us to look at issues, to change the way that we are conducting ourselves, our business operations, while still complying with changing immigration rules, policies, deadlines, etc. Uh, I also want to remind you that we are recording this conference and playing it a day later, so if some information is a little dated... We apologize, but we plan to continue to share that information through the multi-bulletin and the multi-forum, but we wanted to make sure, because everybody's working remotely, that we can access this information to you all. Also, as a Because as lawyers, we're not just attorneys, but we are counselors and advisors to people. I do want to tell each person not to panic, not to lose faith, not to lose hope. I think together we will all come out stronger and better with everything that's going on because we would have learned valuable lessons and how to deal with a crisis and how to come out feeling more like we are in control of other things that happen in our life. With that, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, my esteemed colleagues, Jessica Beaver and Kevin Andrews, as well as the entire Murthy Law Firm, we wish you, your families, your businesses, and everybody a safe and healthy season as we deal with the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis. Thank you so much for joining us and have a good rest of the afternoon. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy law firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.